Am I on, guys? <laughs> I'm watching Hayden and Brian trying to give me the signal you're on. Good morning, Arbor. I am Scott Hetherington. Um, I'm on the teaching team here at Arbor. We welcome you today on Super Bowl Sunday. I don't know if you're going to be watching the game later today. We don't really have any skin in the game if you're a Seattle Seahawks fan, other than it's a fun game to watch. Um, I'm not really... Either way, I got family that lives in the Missouri area around Kansas City, so I'll probably be pulling for the Chiefs to win the game. I definitely am not cheering for he who shall not be named due to a game that we shall not mention that happened in our near you know, past that still is very painful for many of us, and I, I don't ever even want to call him the GOAT. I don't think he is the GOAT. For me, oh, here you go. For me today, I think I would say that what we're going to learn today, Jesus is the GOAT. He's the greatest of all time. There you go. So he can take that and figure it out, but it's a fun day. It's become this American tradition, the Super Bowl. So maybe you're with family and friends today and you're watching that, so enjoy that today. It's kind of ironic that it is a Super Bowl today because what we're going to be talking about today is kind of like the big Super Bowl of the Christian world. It's about the, the end times, the return of Christ and his triumphant return coming back to earth and what that's going to look like for all of us. So there's a little bit of a parallel today. We're continuing our series on um, letters to a young church. And we've been looking at the past four weeks, First Thessalonians. And then next week, Brian's going to wrap up First Thessalonians for us. And then we're going to move in to Galatians. But the theme that we've had throughout this series of letters to a young church is the truths of then are truths for today. It's kind of a little bit of a tongue twister. The truths of then are the truths for today. And that's been our overarching theme that we want you to carry with you, that what Paul is teaching the church in Thessalonica is relevant to us today, and that it can be applied to our life today. Um, my theme today for this passage that we're going to be looking at, we're going to be going from the middle of chapter 4 to the middle of chapter 5. And remember that when the letter to Thessalonica was written, it wasn't broken up in chapters, it was just a letter. It was later on that we broke the Bible up into books and chapters to be able to find things better. Um, so as we dig through that today, what I want you to remember as our overarching theme for today is this. Christians have hope of life with Christ in death. Christians have the hope of life with Christ in death. And that is a very big caveat there, with Christ. A lot of people say we have hope in life after death, but we have hope in life with Christ after death because I believe that after death you're either going to be with Christ or you're going to be without Christ. And those are two distinct things that we need to understand in our Christian faith that I don't think we talk enough about it this, you know, anymore in church, and Paul's going to delve into that sometimes. But I want you to also remember that the conversation today, the passage we're reading through today, is anchored to two key thoughts around encouragement. Paul wrote this letter to encourage the church. So even though he's talking about heavy things about the return of Christ and, and death, he wants it to be an encouragement. He says in verse 418, therefore encourage one another with these words, what he's going to teach us today. In verse 511, Paul says, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. So he wants to remind the Thessalonians that 
All the way up through this book, it's been an encouragement, a praise of what they're doing. Last week, David taught us, he then told them, keep sanctifying, keep living your life to grow in Christ. And right now, even as I talk about some heavy things about death and the return of Christ, I want you to encourage one another by doing what you're doing still. And I want you to hold on to that as we talk through this today. Now, in the middle of these two encouragement verses is a whole lot of heavy theology about life, death, the return of Christ, the rapture, the second coming, all this that we call the end times. And while I'm certain that today I will not be able to provide all the clarity and questions that you might have around the end times, my hope is that if it does spark some wondering and questions that you would go dig into the scripture you would find another Christian believer to talk through with it, that you would do some research on commentaries because anything that pushes us to learn more about what Christ says and what his plans for us are is a good thing for us to continue to grow in him. So while I won't be able to answer all of it today, I hope that it sparks some initiative on your part to begin having conversations with yourself and Christ and others and your family about these important topics of Christ's return because he is coming back. Around the topic of death, I don't want you to walk away from today saying that Christians shouldn't grieve death. Grief is a legitimate thing when it comes to death. We shouldn't fear death. And I want to help realize, we talk about this a little more, that when we grieve as Christians, there's a hope that can be attached to it as well. All right, and I'll share a little bit more about that later as well. So remember as we dig through all this theology today of the rapture and the resurrection of Christ, And while no one can speak dogmatically and clarity on exactly what's going to happen, we have scripture that can back things up, I want you to remember these three things today as we go through this. Because it can get a little bit confusing, but we're always going to come back to these three things we know for certain. One, Jesus died and rose from the dead. Two, Jesus is coming again for us. And three, we will spend eternity with Jesus after death. Those three things, Jesus died and rose again for us, Jesus is returning for us, and we will spend eternity with Jesus after death. Those those three things are anchor points that are true throughout Scripture. No matter where we fall in this conversation of the end times, those are true. So don't lose sight of those as to around how the return of Christ might chronologically unfold. Hold on to the hope and promise that Christ will return as we as Christians do not need to fear death and grieve it in the same meaning of without hope. In fact, this is where we begin our passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Let me pray. God, I pray as we dig into your word today. Um, I know it can be a bit rambling with me up here, God. I pray that you would take my words and my message and make it your own, that your wisdom and your truth would be shared today, God. I pray that you would give us ears that want to hear, hearts that want to listen, and feet that want to go put it into action. I thank you, God, for your truth of then that is truth for today and eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. So we pick up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. <clears throat> for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those 
who have fallen asleep. The word asleep and fallen asleep is used multiple times in these verses. But Paul also says, do not grieve like the rest of mankind. Not that we should not grieve, not that death is not sad, painful, hurtful, a sense of loss. He followed this up with this, do not grieve, and then the following clarifier, like the rest of mankind who have no hope. When we, when we lose someone, when death comes into our life through a loved one, there is going to be a sense of loss. We are going to miss them in this life. There's not the ability to talk to them and communicate with them again. It's, everybody says, if I could have said one more thing, if I could have had one more conversation. It's not that we as Christians don't feel deeply and miss that person deeply and grieve in that loss. So I'm not trying to minimize that we as Christians shouldn't grieve the loss and missing of a loved one in our life. That is natural. That is valid. Those are how we should feel. But with that grief, grief, as a Christian, God connects a hope, a hope that someday we will be reunited with them, that we will see our loved ones again. We will see those who passed before us in the eternal life with Christ. So that is the hope that attaches to that aching, that longing for those that die. I do not want to minimize that today. Paul talking here then asks two key questions for us. The two questions that come up are this. How are believers to grieve death differently than the way that others may grieve death? And second one is, what does hope have to do with death? How do those go together? Well, let's start with this idea of falling asleep that Paul mentions here so many times. Sleep was a very common way in the day of the Thessalonica church to express death in the ancient world. But among the pagans, it was almost always seen as an eternal sleep. There was no life after death. It was over and done, and they went to this eternal sleep. In fact, ancient writings of philosophers and teachers of the day emphasized this, all right? Asically said, of a man once dead, there is no resurrection. Theocritus wrote, Hopes are among the living, the dead are without hope. Catalyst in his times around the Thessalonica church said, Suns may set and rise again, but we, when once our brief light goes down, must sleep in endless night. So the concept that Paul's about to introduce to the church at Thessalonica about there is hope after death was really completely different than what they had grown up hearing in their own pagan beliefs, that there wasn't anything after death. It was the end. Christians began to use the word sleep like Paul does to relate to death because it was the common vernacular of the day. But when Christians talked about sleep, they meant it more in a temporary framework that you woke up from your sleep. And they used it, in fact, they called the earlier burial places cemeteries or dormitories, a temporary place. So Christians recognized that when the word sleep was used for death, for them it was temporary because we would be reunited with Christ. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here. But the church was struggling with this concept. So he says, I don't want you to be not informed. So let's talk about it. So when Paul said in the passage that those who have gone before you, the dead in Christ, will be with us in paradise, will be with us in heaven in eternity, he believed that. In fact, in Philippians 1.23, Paul says this, 
I desire to part and be with Christ, which is better by far. The context is Paul had gotten to this point in his ministry. He's like, I'm weary. I'm tired. I'm persecuted. I've been in jail. I've been beaten. I am ready to leave this world now and be with Christ. So a lot of questions arise. So when we die as Christians, do we immediately go to be with the Father? What happens to our souls? I believe we do. I believe what Paul is saying in the church in the letter to the Philippians tells us when we as believers die, our soul goes to be with Christ in paradise, in heaven. Now, I also back this up with the example of the thief on the cross. As there's two thieves at the crucifixion of cross, one thief was mocking Jesus, and the other thief basically told him, stop mocking him, and looked at Jesus and said, please remember me, can I be with you? And Jesus looked at that thief and said, today you will be with me in paradise. Not later, not this prolonged soul sleep, not this hope after I die of maybe it's going to happen, but a hope of assurance, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, we could stand here and theologically debate all this about what is the timing of it. But the truth is this. Jesus is saying, I died and rose again. I am coming back for you and you will spend eternity with me. I believe that when we go to sleep death, our souls go to be with Christ. And that's a promise he gives us throughout scripture. Even Paul said in verse 14, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. If you fall asleep in him, in your belief, you've given your life to him, all right, then you will be spending eternity with Christ. So back to our questions. How are believers to grieve death differently than the way others may view death? And remember, differently doesn't mean you don't have the same sense of loss and hurt and missing someone. It means believers have the hope of life with Christ, their creator, after death. It is not just the end. There is a life to live in reconciliation and perfect harmony with Christ in eternity. And we'll talk more about that. And what does hope have to do with death? The truth should give us hope that our life on earth has a purpose. That to ensure that others are redeemed in Christ so they too can be with Christ in eternity. I'm going to dig into this a little bit more, but there's this idea a lot of people think that you know, when we die, we go into this other consciousness and the, God, and the goal is to raise our level of consciousness and become more like God. Deepak Chopra teaches, teaches us a lot that when we pass, our brain and soul goes into another level of consciousness and circles back around again and again and again to attain something like God. I'm here to tell you that we are not here to attain to be like God. That goes against scripture. As I'll tell you later, that was the first lie that Lucifer, the angel who became Satan, believed is the first lie he told Adam and Eve. In death, we're not going to be like God. In death, we're going to be with God. With him in relationship. With him in eternity. With him to celebrate a new world that he promises to create. To get back to the perfect relationship he intended for created man to have with him. An infinite, all-knowing God. That's our hope. And that's what we should celebrate. So in the midst of this, don't lose sight of how theologies can create different conversations. The truth is that Christ is coming back and we get to be with him. So what about this return of Christ that we're talking about? Well, let's look at verses 16 through 17. In verse 16, Paul says, 
For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I don't know if those three things are all going to happen at the exact same time, or if there are three distinct things, first this, then this, then that. I don't know if it's maybe like a big sporting event where everybody's cheering and yelling and clapping or blowing horns or shouting. It could be a big thing like that. It could be three distinct things. Again, we could sit and theologically debate all that. But what's the promise here? The dead in Christ will rise first. Their bodies will be raptured. After that, we are still alive and our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Not the how exactly it's going to happen, but the fact that it's going to happen. It's a promise. So what is Paul talking about here? I mean, if, if you were to open up the Bible and just start reading it, there's some pretty fantastical wild things in there to read. A little, you might be like, that's a little bit of crazy talk right here. That sounds like it's out of a sci-fi fantasy movie. What do you mean we're going to meet Jesus in the air and the dead in Christ will go? And why do we need our dead bodies to go up to heaven? To be re- There's a lot of questions in there. Right here, most people believe what Paul is talking about is called the rapture. Now, When I grew up in my church, we used to have these big old revival meetings, and we put a tent up out in the backfield, and we had a week-long revival meeting all week long, and a lot of it was about what they called the end times, Jesus' return to earth. And I have some beliefs that grew up in that church that I still hold on to. Some of it's changed a little bit as well. But I'm going to give you an overarching view of what main line I learned growing up. And you may look at it a little bit differently, and these are the conversations we can have. But basically, what what I have learned through Scripture and what was taught to me called dispensationalism of the end times is the order of events. And what I'm sharing with you, people look at differently. We're going to talk about that. But basically, we're living right now in what is called Pentecost age. Jesus died on the cross, rose again, the Holy Spirit came onto the apostles, and that started the new church the New Testament church. And we are still in the New Testament church age, Pentecost, waiting for Christ's return. And we'll remain in that until Christ comes back. Now, this is telling us that Christ will come back. He will come partway down and somewhere in the atmosphere and we will rise up into the air to meet with him and be taken from this earth. Why are we taken from this earth, you may ask? Because we learn later in the Revelation that there's going to be a seven-year time period called the Tribulation. And the Tribulation is launched by the rising to power of a world leader that will unify the world under a government called the Antichrist. He looks like Christ, he talks like Christ, he does miracles, and he will come and deceive the world. And the world will fall down and follow him. And it's during that seven years the Bible talks about called the tribulation that this begins. And halfway through the tribulation, these calamities and all these things begin to happen on earth to bring to the end of the tribulation the second coming of Christ. Where at the end of the seven years, the second coming happens where Christ comes down to earth. And that ushers in him wiping out this world leader, the Antichrist, 
and beginning his millennial kingdom of reign on the earth, which eventually leads to a renewed world and perfect world. Now, when I share that with you, that sounds like a script out of Hollywood. And in fact, it's the basis for a lot of what we see in sci-fi and fantasy because it's from the scripture. Now, as I laid that out, the order of the events can greatly be debated. In fact, Brian and I had a lot of great conversations about this week. So does the rapture actually come at the start of the tribulation? Or does it come in the middle of the tribulation? Or maybe the rapture has at the end of the tribulation, he pulls everybody out, and then God comes down to earth to make war and battle. I don't have time today to go through all the arguments of the different places it occurs. But I do know these things will occur. So I want to pull some truths out of this first of all. The rapture and the second coming of Christ are often confused. And sometimes it's difficult to determine which one is coming first, which one is coming next. But I want to give you some bullet points about what are the common beliefs around the rapture and second coming. At the rapture, believers meet the Lord in the air. Because Jesus doesn't come down to earth at that point. At the second coming, it was taught that believers will come down with Jesus to earth to wage the war. The second coming, second coming occurs after the great and terrible tribulation is where most people put the second coming. The rapture, most people put it at the beginning of the tribulation. Again, there's a lot that can be happening here. The rapture is the removal of believers from the earth as an act of deliverance. You won't have to walk through that tribulation. The second coming includes the removal of unbelievers as an act of judgment. This is where I want to clarify. The rapture is deliverance because Christ is delivering those who are promised to be with him. When he comes back to earth, on earth, he's not coming back as a gracious savior. He's coming back as a king to eradicate the evil that entered the world from the Garden of Eden. Because that's his goal. That's his end game, to stop the evil, to overcome it once and for all. The rapture and second coming are similar but separate events. Both involve Jesus returning. The rapture, tribulation, second coming, the timeline. I mean, they used to make big banners of it when I was a kid, and all the graphics were on there, and the lines and everything. It was really beautiful. And people argue about where it all happens. But I want to take you back to these three things because it can get confusing. One, all right, encourage yourself with this. Jesus died and rose from the dead. Jesus is coming back. We get to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. Those are the things that Paul is saying should encourage you. He understands that some of this can be confusing. And there's a beauty in the debate about all this because do you understand if we sit down and we start debating when the things will happen, what we're actually debating is the fact that Jesus comes back. And when we end up standing before our Savior, I don't think there's going to be an elbow going, I told you I was right, didn't I? And if there is, it'll be a perfect little after moment because you know what we're arguing and getting up riled about? That we get to be with Jesus in paradise forever. And we lose sight of that as believers because we fall asleep in our earthly bodies and forget to tell people. It is not popular to preach condemnation and hell and heaven and all this stuff in church anymore. Because while God is a loving God, when he returns to this earth for the second time, he's coming to wipe out evil. He will not die and sacrifice his son again. He did that once and for all. 
So these are important theological things for us to know, but don't get caught up on the when and the how. Get caught up in Jesus died and rose again. Jesus is coming again, and we get to spend eternity with Jesus. That's the encouragement. That's the hope that we can have in death. So when is all this going to happen, Scott? Well, you know, <laughs> I, I've been around not very long. I've been around some a number of years. And uh, I've heard a lot of preachers stand up and say, I believe we're in the end times. I see it scripture. I've seen books published about it. I've heard a pastor stand up and say it's going to happen in the next year. Well, what's interesting is when Paul was writing this, he was convinced and the Thessalonians were convinced it was going to happen in their lifetime. And that was how many years ago? We don't know the dates and times, and Paul talks about this next. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You don't know, but it's going to happen. Not knowing doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It doesn't mean it's not expected. You just don't know when the expected is going to happen. It's kind of like when you're a kid and you went to a haunted house and you're walking down the hall. You know someone's going to jump out and scare you at some point. But just because you know doesn't mean you don't get startled and surprised. And that's always my favorite part as a dad, scaring my kids. I love doing that. It was so mean, but it was so fun. All right? They're probably not laughing right now. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. I don't know if labor pains come on suddenly all the time. In fact, sometimes they don't, but that's the example that's being used here. The idea that we know the baby's going to be born, we just don't always know the exact moment in time. I had one that was almost born on the side of the interstate, and thank God we made it to the hospital just in time because eight minutes after arriving, the baby was born. That's cutting it close right there. All right? Um, We'll come... Like, um, we'll not escape. Verse four, but you brothers and sisters are not in darkness, so this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. That's a funny little analogy. What he's saying is this. Don't walk around like the walking dead. Don't be asleep in your faith. Like James says, faith without works is dead. And too many of us as believers, and for seasons of my life, I walked around without the reality of what my purpose on life was, that Christ is coming back, and we should be about depopulating hell and populating heaven. Because if you truly understand there's hope with Christ after death, why would you want people to have life without Christ after death? And that should be a catalyst and a motivator for you. The day of the Lord will come unexpectedly, like the arrival of a thief. It is described as a time of darkness, all right, and dreadful consequences. Unbelievers will be stuck in this and caught up in this, and we should want to rescue them as the Father came and rescued us. And because the Thessalonian believers had come to know the light of the world, they wanted to be that same light on earth, to rescue people from this coming darkness. And they didn't want to walk around in a fog. 
Paul says another warning to Christians in Ephesians. In Ephesians, he tells the Christians, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So if we as believers fail to be alert to the times and the hopeless condition, we are doing a disservice to the calling of the Great Commission, go and make disciples. This reminds me of a cousin of mine who used to sleepwalk. I won't say her name, but my whole family will know who I'm talking about. She would literally get up out of bed, walk around the house, all right? Sometimes she would leave the house. In fact, when they were living in Oklahoma City, they lived in this apartment complex, and she would walk out the front door and walk down the sidewalk to other houses and knock on the doors, go into homes maybe, and just wander the neighborhood, come home, go back to bed. I don't, maybe she learned to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich tonight. That'd be a cool trick. But she'd get up the next morning and have no memory of it. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's like, I don't want you thinking that as you walk through this life on earth and you pass away, you're going to have no memory of what happened here. That's not true. Because we'll be in a resurrected body that will be able to go, oh, wow. So if you're going to be able to see what was truth in your life, then right now live in the moment and seize that truth and live it for God. Because you don't die and forget everything. You die and spend eternity with Christ and it's credited to you, credited to you what you've done. Well done, my good and faithful service. It says that we will get crowns in heaven, but not for our glory because we're gonna turn right around and push them right back to God and say, for your glory. So we have a condition on earth to walk in what he's calling sober-mindedness, awake. He says, don't be asleep at the wheel. If any of you have driven home one night and you're driving, hopefully not in a drunken state, that's not what I'm talking about. But you've ever been on a long drive and all of a sudden you get home, you're like, what the heck? How did, I've done that before. Like a very, I'm like my thinking through work, I'm thinking through problems. And I'm like, I don't even remember going through the lights right now. So I just got home. I think that's what happens with us in our Christian walk. And Paul warns us against that. He wants us to constantly live in the spirit of Jesus died and rose again. Jesus is coming back and we get to spend eternity with Jesus. Don't lose that picture. He goes on to say in verse eight, but since we belong to the day, listen to me, since we belong to the light, the day, we know it's coming, let us be sober, putting on faith, and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to come back and have wrath and judgment on us. He wants redemption. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you're doing. He uses two more analogies here. One of them is faith and love is a breastplate. The breastplate was the piece of armor that went right here. It protected your internal organs, your heart, your lungs, the very life of your body right here that were, if, they, they, if they were to be injured, you would die. It's the same thing when he talks about put on the full armor of God. It's the idea of all this, the sanctification of Christ lives here on a day-to-day -day basis. We should continue to grow and be healthy in God. So we need to have this faith and love on that protects that. And then he says to put on the hope of salvation to protect our mind. And let me tell you, because there's a lot of mind games happening, 
The enemy wants to confuse. He wants to deceive. He wants to get you to think and believe things that aren't true. And we need to have the hope of salvation on that the reason we're here, the reason we're with Christ is because he died for us. He gave his life for us. And he rose again and he's coming back and he wants to spend eternity with us. And we've got to protect our mind, renew it daily. We've got to make sure our internal organs of sanctification, our internal works and how we're living are aligning with Scripture. And walk with the seriousness in heart because he is coming back. Paul reminds us, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is about hope. Because Christians have the hope of life with Christ in death. I want to paint a picture to you because I want to go back to the very beginning of how all this really started. Go back to Genesis. God created the world. He created a garden called Eden. And he created man and woman to live in that garden in perfect harmony with them. They were without fault. They were perfect. There is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. And then as, as Adam and Eve lived in that garden, each evening Jesus would come down and talk with them. They'd have relationships and conversations and discourse. But unbeknown to Adam and Eve, there is a story before their story. And the story before their story is very critical for you to understand because a story before their story launched in the heavens between the angels and God the Father. Because the head of the angels was, a, was an angel named Lucifer. And his whole job is to make sure that everything the angels did was to bring glory to God the Father. He was the light bearer, the brightest of the angels, the most beautiful, and he carried glory to God. And it says that Lucifer began to think, why can I not be like God? And when Lucifer began to want to be like God and receive the glory and attain the same glory that God was getting from him, he was kicked out of heaven and it ensued in a heavenly battle where a third of the angels were kicked out of heaven with Lucifer. Lucifer knew in that moment he had lost, but he knew a lie that he was going to sow. And when he showed up in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, the very lie he told them was, oh, you will not die. You will become like God and you will know good and evil. Do you see the truth in there? He knew that they'd spend eternity with God. He knew that once their eyes were open, they would now know not just perfection, but imperfection. Yet the biggest lie is you will become like God. The Tower of Babel, hundreds of years later, they tried to build a tower to heaven so that they could appoint themselves as gods. And throughout history of mankind, most of religions talk about attaining a different level of some spirituality post-death. Attaining some level of consciousness post-death that is about this higher consciousness, this higher godness somewhere in this ethereal universe. Folks, you need to see the distinct lie of Lucifer, Satan, and the enemy in that. We are never going to be God. We are never going to be like God in his characteristics and attributes because he is God. But we will be with God. He never wanted us to be him. He wanted someone that would be with him. 
He showed this, that he didn't want that when he sent his son, Jesus, to earth. And it says Jesus descended into earth. He took on the form of man and became nothing. See, the secret to Christ is not ascending to his spiritual level. It's descending in the grace and forgiveness of his son. So that he, Jesus, lifts us up to be in eternity with him so that he can redeem that which was lost, perfection with his created beings. And in the end, the end game is to create a world where in our new bodies, our perfected bodies, we're in perfected relationship with Christ again. That's the end game. And Satan knows it. And Peter says he roams around like a seeking lion looking for somebody to devour. Satan knows the playbook. It's like the Super Bowl today. Imagine if the other team got the playbook. Boy, would they be able to have a big advantage in that game. Don't think that Lucifer doesn't know the end game. Don't think he doesn't know the playbook. His goal right now is to try to take as many people down with him as he can. So how much more should we as believers not be asleep to this and be awake on earth telling people these three things? Jesus died for you and rose again. Jesus is coming back. And you as a believer get to spend eternity with Jesus. That is what Paul is saying. Encourage one another with this. Go be sober-minded. Go make disciples. Live in that hope that you get the privilege. We get the privilege of sharing that message with the lost world to depopulate hell and bring as many people into eternity with Christ as we can. So we need to learn to live, Arbor, in the immediacy of today. The, the resilience and the moment of now. That we are on earth for a purpose. That we need to live with this heavenly mindset that God is coming back. He does have a time stamp. We don't know when it is. And so we need to live to lead others to having this hope with Christ in death. Let's pray.